Good morning, and welcome. My turn to welcome you. Um, We're glad that you are here this morning. As George already mentioned, if you're a guest, we're, we're honored to have you with us today. Hope you feel right at home. I don't know how many of you are early risers. I don't know how many people here get up really early in the morning, you like four o'clock in the morning or something. I don't. I get up pretty early on Sundays. I don't get up at four o'clock in the morning early on Sundays. If that's you, you know, congratulations. Probably figuring on catching a little nap during the sermon here. <laughs> Many do. Not too long ago, I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning. It happens when you get older. I woke up wide awake. Don't you hate that? What do you do at 4 o'clock in the morning? I didn't want to wake Martha up, so I slipped into the den, turned on the television. You know what's on television at 4 o'clock in the morning? 150 channels and not much. I looked at the program guide. Almost everything said paid programming which, of course, is code for infomercial, you know. And, of course, there was like six or eight telling you how to lose weight. And I looked through them, and I didn't see a single one that mentioned exercise more or eat less. I saw five or six channels about how to have a a new home, new car, new boat, whole new life by working 20 hours a week out of your home. And then, of course, there was two or three channels directed to people like me, how to have a beautiful head of hair. <laughs> those are the worst. I hate those. Because it always has a before and after pictures going on, right? And the before, I mean, the after picture is always some guy coming out of a swimming pool, shaking his head in slow motion, this, you know, thick hair. And all the girls around the pool going, ooh, wow, what a beautiful head of hair. And then the before picture is the insert of the same sorry sap looking like, like me. <laughs> Man, I hate those. Those are the worst. Have you noticed there's always somebody trying to sell you something that you don't really need? There's always people trying to tell you, I have something that you need and it'll change your life. And it's available to you for four easy installments of, you know, $24.95. It can be yours. Forty years ago or so, when this whole infomercial thing got started, a guy by the name of Steve Goodman wrote a song about it. He talks about um, falling asleep one night while he's watching TV. And the products that in his song sort of date the song, um, but if you're old enough, you'll remember some of the things he talks about. His song went like this. I fell asleep last night with the TV on. Oh, what a dream I had. I dreamed I went and answered every single one of those late night mail order ads. And four to six weeks later, much to my surprise, the postman came to my front door and I couldn't believe my eyes. And then he says, when I got the vegematic and the pocket fisherman too. Illuminated, illustrated, history of life, boxcar wheelie with a Ginsu knife, a bamboo steamer, and a garden weasel too. And a tie-dye day glow souvenir cert from Six Flags over Georgia. It's a really catchy little song, and if you're old enough, you'll remember boxcar wheelie. 
If you're old enough, you'll remember the Ginsu knife. You know, the products change, but the hype doesn't change, does it? It's always people trying to tell you, I've got just what you need. It'll change your life. Now, the reality is there are some things that we need. And there are some things that really will change our lives. The challenge is separating the hype from the hope. This morning, we're going to talk about something that we really do need. Not only do we need it, God wants us to have it. Not only does God want us to have it, He is offering it to us. Not for easy payments. He's offering it to us as a gift. Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Last week, we looked at Peter's miraculous release from prison in Acts chapter 12. We talked a little bit about the power of prayer and the early church's dependence on prayer. Acts chapter 13 represents a pretty significant shift in Luke's writing in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters of Acts is really is pretty much some of the Acts of some of the apostles. There's a lot of storylines going on. Um, the Holy Spirit is certainly a major player in the first 12 chapters of Acts. Starting in Acts chapter 13, the focus really does shift to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Peter is only mentioned one more time in the rest of the book. Now, the Holy Spirit is still a major player in the narrative, and there's some other people involved in the story, of course, but only really in the context of Paul's dogged determination to take the good news of Jesus to all nations. Remember, Jesus said back in Acts 1, this thing's going to start in Jerusalem, but then it's going to spread. It's going to go to all nations. And Acts chapter 13 is sort of the beginning of Paul's effort to take the news of Jesus to all nations. Last week, when we were talking about prayer, I used the analogy of us being on God's favorite list. And I mentioned that God will always take our call. God always answers our call. Sadly, the opposite of that is not always true. While God always answers our call, we don't always answer the call of God. I've told you before, Jesus didn't come and establish a church and then give the church a mission. Jesus came to this earth with a mission. And then he established his church in order to fulfill the mission of making disciples, of making followers of Jesus, introducing people to Jesus, drawing people closer to God. The first half of Acts chapter 13 is Paul and Barnabas accepting the call of God. And by the time we get to verse 14, Paul and his traveling companion Barnabas find themselves in the outpost of Antioch of Pisidia. And it's here in Antioch where I want to stop and spend a little bit of time and listen to what Paul has to say because it's something that those people in Antioch needed and it's something that we need as well. Acts chapter 13, let's pick it up in verse 14. But Barnabas and Paul traveled inland to Antioch of Pisidia. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. After the usual readings from the books of Moses and from the prophets, those in charge of the service sent them this message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for us, come and give it. If you have any word of encouragement for us, come and give it. The old King James says, if you have a word of exhortation, speak on. 
Never ask a preacher if he has anything to say. You probably heard the story about the guy who walked out in the middle of a pretty long sermon. Before the sermon's over, he came back in. The preacher went and found him after the service and said, what's the big idea of walking out in the middle of my sermon and then showing up at the very end? The guy said, oh, I went out to get a haircut. Went out to get a haircut. Why don't you get a haircut before I started preaching? I didn't need one when you started preaching. (laughs) These people in Antioch, they tell Paul, if you have any word of encouragement, if you have anything to say to us, anything you think we need to hear, go ahead and tell us. And of course, Paul says, as a matter of fact, I do have something to say. It just so happens I do have a word of encouragement to share with you this morning. And in Acts chapter 13, we read the first recorded sermon in Scripture given by the Apostle Paul. Now, it's not the first time Paul stood up and talked to people about Jesus, but it is the first public address that we read about Paul sharing in Scripture. And as you read through this sermon of Paul's, you're going to see pretty quickly it is amazingly similar to those sermons that we've looked at preached by Peter earlier on in the book. In fact... It's almost as if Paul has just found Peter's outline somewhere. And Paul makes the decision, this is what I'm going with. I'm going to preach the same sermon. Paul is just as specific, just as focused as was Peter on the message. In fact, Paul calls it good news, just like Peter called it good news. Uh, Verse 32 of chapter 13. And now we are here to bring you this good news. And that's exactly what Paul shares with the people. What he tells is good news. His word of encouragement is good news. I told you it was a sermon. The way I know it's a sermon, he has three points. And not only does he have three points, all three of Paul's points begin with the same letter. So yeah, it is definitely a sermon that he's preaching here. So Paul's about to deliver this powerful three-point sermon to these listeners in Antioch. And his first point is a very foundational point. He says, listen, there's prophecy. Just like Peter did in Acts chapter 2, Paul starts talking about prophecy. He starts sharing with these people um, Hebrew history. He reminds them of Moses leading the Israelites out of captivity. He he reminds them of the judges, Samuel, the early prophets. He reminds them of King Saul and King David, a man after God's own heart. He reminds them of John the Baptist, a a much more recent prophet. And what Paul is telling his audience is all of Hebrew history is pointed toward one man. All of Hebrew history is pointed toward a Messiah. That was the prophecy. Paul says, I have a word of encouragement for you this morning. Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 27, the people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophets' words that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. Paul says, we know what the prophets have said. We know the prophecies. The Messiah is coming. Remember, there is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
But Paul's not done with his word of encouragement. That's just his first point. So not only is there a prophecy, there's also proof. There's proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Jesus of Nazareth wasn't the first person to claim to be a Messiah, and he hasn't been the last either. A lot of people before Jesus, a lot of people since, have claimed divinity. But Jesus had something that separates him from all other wannabe messiahs. Jesus had proof that he was who he said he was. And again, this proof is really good news. Verse 32, and now we're here to bring you this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors and God has now fulfilled it for us. Their descendants by raising Jesus. You want proof that Jesus is the Messiah? God raised him from the dead. Skip down to verse 34. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. He said, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. Another psalm explains it more fully. You will not allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, he died and was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, it was a reference to someone else. Someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Paul said, I have a word of encouragement for you this morning. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross. His dead body was placed in a tomb. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. The the body is not there anymore. Death, decay, did not have power over Jesus because God raised him from the dead. Paul said, Psalm 1610, which he quotes in this passage, it's not about David. It's about Jesus. Of course, Paul doesn't call it 1610, but he does quote it correctly and he interprets it perfectly. The prophecy here, the proof, is that God is going to raise the Messiah from the dead, just like Jesus said he would. If you go to Moscow, and if you're so inclined, you can get in a line and you can view the body of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin died in 1924. For the past 95 years, his entombed, uh, his embalmed body has been laying for people to come and stand in line and look at. He's called the father of communism. Near his body, there is a plaque which says, in part, he was the greatest leader of all time. He was the Lord of all humanity. He was the Savior of the world. I got a problem with that. And I got a problem with the claims that are made right there. I got a big problem, and the problem is, he's still dead. He's been dead for a long time. And everybody knows that he's been dead for a long time. He is not the greatest leader of all time. He was not the Lord of all humanity. He was not the Savior of the world. He's just a guy who died and is still dead. See, I need a Savior who can do something about the grave. I need a Savior who can do something about overcoming death. I need a Savior who can grant me the same kind of access to resurrection power 
that brought him back to life. Jesus is the greatest leader of all time. Jesus is the Lord of all humanity. He is the Savior of the world. Stuart Chase once said, For those who believe, no proof is necessary. For those who do not believe, no proof is possible. Sounds good, but I don't agree with them. See, I want proof. I want a reason to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. I need a reason. I need proof. And Paul's encouraging word is, you have a reason to believe. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. All the way back in chapter 1, Luke wrote, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Jesus proved in many ways that he was actually alive. My faith is not based on legends and fairy tales. My faith is based on the fact that Jesus proved in many ways that he is actually alive. You know, we have talked a lot this year about being a witness. We have talked about telling people our Jesus story about getting out of our comfort zone and boldly telling people, listen, here's what Jesus has done for me. Here's why I love Jesus and sharing that information. We've talked about not just gaining information, but transformation, about becoming more like Jesus. We have infallible proof that Jesus is the Messiah. And we can't stay where we are if we truly believe that Jesus didn't stay where he was. Somebody ought to amen that. Let me try that again. (laughs) We can't stay where we are if we truly believe that Jesus didn't stay where he was. Better, thank you. Our faith is not based on some philosophy. It's not really based on doctrine. Our faith is based on history. Our faith is based on the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. He was placed in a sealed tomb. And three days later, God brought him back to life. We have proof. The tomb is empty. Okay, that's only two two points to uh, Paul's sermon. He's got one more truth, one more word of encouragement to share with his audience. One, there's a prophecy. A Messiah was promised. Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Two, there is undisputed proof. The tomb is empty. And here's Paul's third point. There's prophecy, there's proof, and there is a promise. There is a promise associated with the prophecy. There is a promise associated with the proof. And the promise that Paul is going to mention is really almost too good to be true. It is almost too good to be true. It's hard for us to really believe that the promise is true, or maybe just believe that it applies to us. People listening to Paul had a hard time believing it. I think people today still have a hard time believing it as well. Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. You want to talk about a word of encouragement? Through this man, Jesus... 
there is forgiveness for your sins. That's the promise. And it really is almost too good to be true. Paul's talking about good news. There's no better news than we can have our sins forgiven. It really doesn't get any better than that. In fact, I am convinced that what we need more than anything else is forgiveness. You say, well, I need salvation. You're not going to find salvation without forgiveness. Well, I need the love of God. You're not going to experience the love of God without forgiveness. And maybe it's all wrapped up together. I don't know. But I do know this. Me and God have a real fundamental problem. He's perfect and I'm not. There's a real problem when it comes to my relationship with God. God can't tolerate sin. And I'm a sinner. I mentioned earlier that God doesn't want to sell you something that you don't need. God wants to give you something that you can't live without. And we call it a gift, but it certainly wasn't free. If I were to ask those of you who have some experience or, or work in business or finance, if I was to ask you, you know, what is a thing worth, I'm sure I would get kind of the standard answer. A thing is worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it. What's salvation worth? What's forgiveness worth? What was God willing to pay for our sins to be forgiven? Paul would write this in Colossians chapter 2. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. You were dead. You weren't sick. You weren't doing poorly. You weren't not quite all you could be. You were dead. Then God. You were dead. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave a few of our sins. He forgave some of our sins. He forgave all of our sins. What is not included in all? All means all. He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. God saw me. He saw you. He saw our lives. He saw our actions. He saw our decisions. He saw our heart. And God knew they're not going to make it. They're not going to make it. Not without a sacrifice. And so God sent the very best sacrifice He had. The only sacrifice sufficient. And that was His one and only Son. I want to wrap up... uh, I want to wrap up with a joke, but I'm going to warn you up front, this joke is not funny. I don't even have to say that, do I? But I'm not telling this joke to make you laugh. I'm telling this joke to make you think. I'm sure you've heard it before. Here's the joke. Question. How do you avoid a bear attack when you're hiking in the woods? Answer. You make sure you're hiking with someone that you can outrun. Because you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your pal. I told you that wasn't a funny joke, but here's why I've told you. We've all been the slower pal. 
at some time in our life, we have all been the slower friend. Maybe not an actual bear attack, but at some point in our life, we've all been bear bait. We've all been one set up by an office rival or stabbed in the back by a pretend friend, the scapegoat of some prank that's gone wrong, betrayed by a marriage partner. Yeah. We've all been attacked by bears before. In the summer of 2010, a grandmother and her grandson were hiking near Anchorage, Alaska. It was uh, a a very well-marked trail, uh, well-traveled trail just off the main road. This grandmother and her grandson encountered a bear. The grandmother sent her grandson up a good tree. She went running in the path of the bear, knowing that the bear would instinctively follow her and leave her grandson alone. Several hours later, her grandson was rescued from the tree. His grandmother's body was found about 50 yards from the same tree. That boy learned how to survive a bear attack in the woods. You hike with a grandmother who loves you more than she loves her own life. We survive bear attacks the same way. We walk with someone who loves us more than he loves his own life. We walk with Jesus. We're never alone when the bear attacks or the lion who roams about like looking for someone to devour. Do this for me. Take take the middle finger of your right hand and touch it to the palm of your left hand. Now take the middle finger of your left hand and touch it to the palm of your right hand. Most of you know what that is. That's sign language for Jesus. You've just communicated Jesus. It's by His wounds that we recognize Jesus. By the wounds that He encountered for us, the scars from our bare encounter, the sin and the failure that that we couldn't do anything about on our own. He did on the cross. Yes, by His wounds we're healed. By His wounds we're forgiven. This passage in Acts chapter 13 uh, wraps up in verse 42 and 43. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, And the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. These men were urged to continue to rely on the grace of God. Question. What do you rely on? Do you rely on the notion that, well, I'm I'm faster than the bear. I'm, I'm faster than the people around me. Do you rely on, so far so good... I'll figure it out. I can handle it. Or are you relying on the grace of God? Are you continuing to walk with the Savior? The Savior of prophecy. The Savior of proof. The Savior of promise. You know, we're going through the book of Acts. You cannot read the book of Acts without coming away with the conclusion, I need Jesus. 
It is impossible to read the book of Acts and not conclude, I need Jesus. A word of encouragement this morning. The very thing you most desperately need, God desperately wants you to have. Jesus. The church family this morning, if we can help you any way with that, there'll be some people at the front of the auditorium. Meet us there. Let's stand and sing.